not your weekly sports pod. Welcome back to Not Your Weekly Sports Pod. Putting the emphasis in not in the Not Your Weekly Sports Pod and talking about the subject that is toxic to any woman in the room that I've been in, which is the world of Westeros. <laughs> Game of Thrones. I know they're out there, bro, but there's just not a lot of women in my life who enjoy the uh, the world of Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, and that's what we're going to touch on today with my boy, Nabil, real deal, sex appeal, baby. fresher than the color teal, man, what's up, wearing your Astros gear on Astros opening day, just, we just witnessed a ninth inning loss to one of the worst teams in baseball, how's life, brother? It's good, man, it's good, it's the fact of knowing that baseball season's here, the playoffs are upon us, but most importantly, we just finished season one of... Being back in Westeros, man. I think we're we're back and having you know the greatness of HBO upon us, Successions upon us, Game uh, House of the Dragon just finished up. It's a good time to be alive, Ola. It's a really good time to be alive, despite the Astros losing on opening day. Who would have ever fucking thought? You know, when I first started reading Game of Thrones, the original Game of Thrones book, and the you know I fully read the first three novels, Game of Thrones, Clash of Kings. Um, the third one is Storm of Swords, and I think it's the greatest like trilogy because George R. R. Martin originally wanted to be a three three part series greatest trilogy of books I've ever read in my life who would have ever thought in 2011 when I started reading those books that we'd have a whole universe yeah. set in this mythical land of just naughtiness oh. that all came from the mind of a, a little hobbit looking fat white man yeah J.R.R. Tolkien is some, like rolling in his grave somewhere like saying I really died for this shit he said if I could have just been like a little more racist in my novels maybe they maybe they could have overcome the gritty nitty grittiness of uh, Game of Thrones but no dude George R. R. Martin is now the uh, the cross bearer for this fantasy genre and what a genre it's yeah. turned out to be man from Game of Thrones really I want to say revolutionizing the entire fantasy scene I remember when it first came out and, you know, you were telling people when you when the first wave of people watch Game of Thrones, right? And they're sitting there like, holy fuck, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting on a gold mine. Like, more people need to know about – more people need to come west and dig for gold, right? We need the gold miner expansion, basically. And what was – you know, the typical response was always, uh, dragons, dude, fantasy. Like, that's like Lord of the Rings, right? Oh, my God. And this is taken in a completely different direction, right? This is a, a show – that's about politics, that's about betrayal, that's about the gray areas of human nature, more than any show that I remember seeing at the time, and really a political show with a paint of dragons on it as well, and a paint of mythology that George R. R. Martin takes you in on and expands upon as the books progress and later on as the show progresses. So before we get into the rewatchables of House of the Dragon, this is the first TV show rewatchables we're doing, right? Damn, is it? Maybe, bro. Honestly, I, I think we did, we did recaps of certain yeah, episodes before so. as they came out, but the first season rewatchables on House of the Dragon. Before we go there, man, HBO. Yeah. Shout out HBO. Are you an HBO Sunday guy? You have to be now. I think just with The Last of Us and Succession, like you, I, I, Sundays have become HBO night just off those two shows alone. And they're sitting on a gold mine. They're going to have a lot of new shows coming out as well that. Kind of just shows that, yeah, no, we're, this isn't just a two-headed pony that you guys are going to have. It's, no, we have a, you know, we have a lot of shows coming in. And I think HBO is just taking the cream of the crop in a competitive landscape with, you know, Netflix, Apple TV+, Hulu. Like, you have all those guys. And I think HBO just, you know, is putting everybody to shame. So, well done for them, bro. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's an interesting thought experiment. We talked about before the episode whether or not House of the Dragon really ascends to the Mount Rushmore of HBO series. Like, if you were to sit down... And tier together, you know, the top 10 to 15 HBO shows of all time. And you got to keep in mind, there's a lot of one season mm -hmm. shows like True Detective that you have to kind of consider here. Just off the top of the dome, it, there's no right or wrong answer. Whoever's listening to this episode who's an HBO fan probably has like five shows of yep. their own that we've never seen. But off the top of your head, give me your seven best HBO shows of all time. Go. Uh, Sopranos, Game of Thrones, The Wire. Season one, True Detective, Silicon Valley, Succession. That's six. I know I'm missing one. Band of Brothers is that in there for you? Ooh, oh, you got Watchmen, just, Watch, nah, True Blood, Six True Feet Blood. Under. I'm to think of another one. There Carnivale. Was another one. 
Oh, uh, oh, the, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. That was the seventh one, right Chernobyl's there. Up. Seven. Yeah, yeah, Chernobyl's got to be up one. there. I, mine's is very similar. I would just take the Sopranos out because for whatever reason I haven't been able to make it past season one, and I'd put the Watchmen in. The Ooh. Watchmen was beautifully executed. I'm forgetting that one show as well that should be on there. Remember that one with um, Walter Walter Goggins and um, Vice Principals. Vice Principals has to be up there. It's yeah. either Silicon yeah. Valley or Vice Principals. I yeah. think you got to take one or the <sighs> two as like that 30 minute. Post, you know, Game of Thrones or post succession comedy slot on Sunday, only one can make this list. Fine, fine. Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, dude. Mike Judge. Like the writing for that show, the satire, right around the time Silicon Valley is blowing up. It's just a force of nature on its own. And that doesn't include, you know, real sports with Brian Gumbel or John Oliver. I I think, I think personally, John Oliver is probably the best late night host, not even close uh, out there. So it's like, yeah, you're not even including these two things. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they just, they hit every single genre and yeah, I mean, to your point, we just named off seven and probably name off three more. Those are, yeah, those are the tier ones, right? Tier two, you talk about like band of brothers, um, you start to move into the territory of like mayor of, uh, Veep, I'd probably put Veep would probably be up there as well. Oh yeah. Veep. Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. Sustained excellence yeah. as well for Veep. Um, and a bevy of other shows. You've got true blood out there. Industry got, in there. Say that again. I'll put industry in there. Industry is tier two right now. Yeah. yeah. And I, it's hard to see it making the tier one no, with the not. scope of the show. It'll stay tier two. Um, but a solid show nonetheless. And then you've got your tier threes, like the short-lived HBO shows that weren't really like legendary but still made a name for themselves. I'm Rome. thinking Hung. Your, Rome is yeah. one that due to budgetary limitations and production limitations, they couldn't go any further. Westworld. Westworld is dead. Westworld is two, three. The whole experience of Westworld is tier three. Yeah. Season one of Westworld Fucking amazing. could have been tier one yeah. if they would have been able to sustain it. But yeah, it, it took to it took some creative liberties. Let's just say, it right? Did. Where does House of the Dragon fall in here for you, man? I think we're talking about this pre-pod. I think right now it's t- at tier two, but I wouldn't be surprised if with the way the writing went, the way that the season one ended, that by the time we're done with season two, we have it, you know solidly in the top the top tier uh with all the other shows right now as well and you know i think it's similar it, it's really crazy because i think right now hbo has two shows that are in that threshold right now of like being in the upper tier of uh tier two but easy opportunity to go to tier one i'm guessing the other one is the last of, of us course, absolutely yeah. last of us is you know solidly in tier two right now and same thing with the house of the dragon i wouldn't be surprised based on how good season two becomes that we just automatically put it up in tier one i tend to agree with you that it's a tier two show right now as it stands um i really thought out the gate this was going to be tier one just yeah. because of the involvement of george r. r martin and you know the um the writers that they had brought on Ryan Coogler being one of the better directors from the original game of Thrones being one of the head producers, the executive producer of the show, but there were some faults with it, man. And we can talk about those faults uh, later on when we get to what aged the worst on this show, but that's an interesting point you bring up. So the phenomenon at work right now, I started this new job at uh, my hospital in Houston and House of the Dragons kind of in the rear mirror, the rear view mirror at this point, having started this job, right? And The Last of Us has just started to like get going as I'm getting to know my coworkers. And they're all, a lot of them are obsessed. 100%. It seems like, in terms of the hype meter, The Last of Us is a bigger show than House of the Dragon. And House of the Dragon, I don't know if you know this or not, owned the highest premiered show in HBO history. I think they got something like 8 million views in that first episode. Yep. The Last of Us progressively rose as each episode went on. I think it started with something like 2.9 or 3 million in episode one. And by the fifth episode, it was matching weekly House of the Dragon numbers easily. So from where you're sitting, your hype meter, what do you think people are more hyped for at this point going forward? And what are you more hyped for? I think people are are justifiably more hyped for The Last of Us because – it's just so different, right? I think that third episode when we had like the Nick Offerman episode that, you know, I think probably a lot of people would argue the greatest episode of television that they've ever seen, you know, or up there at least. 
I think that was kind of like that turning point. Like you have no idea what the fuck to expect from this show and it's going to be great either way. And I think, you know, Pedro Pascal is just everybody's like, he's America's new sweetheart. You know, I think he's taken that. So I think because of that, it's going up there. But I think for nerds like you and I that have just been obsessed with fantasy genre and Game of Thrones addicts, um, yeah, I'm just excited for, you know, what this can be. I I have a unique insight in that, you know, I've played the second Last of Us game, which is going to span season two and three of The Last of Us. They're already eyeballing a third season, um, and the second game is a lot more epic in scope, right? There's a lot more cities involved. It's a much longer game, so it's going to naturally be drawn out over two seasons. And I've also read... The uh, book that House of the Dragon is based on, George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood, which is basically a chronicling, a telling of history by the maesters of Westeros. House of the Dragon is going to blow people away yeah, <laughs> in these next it. few seasons, man. The only concern I have is, one, the other executive producer of the series uh, left the show basically because they wouldn't let his wife keep a role. She was uh, she was Lady Allison's maid who was also spying with the worm. Ooh. You remember who I'm talking I about? I you're talking about. She yeah, ended yeah. up getting killed at yep. the very end when uh, the foot fetish guy fucked everyone over. We're just going to call people. We're, we're going to do this from the perspective of the common working man, not yeah. a Game of Thrones, not the series book readers where we know every character's show, although we could do that. We're gonna we're gonna do this for the common folk around us, right? The peasants of uh, of Flea Bottom Bay. <laughs> we're not talking. We're not talking like we're from the Street of Silk, brother. <laughs> so he's gone. They've already said season two of House of the Dragon is gonna contain fewer episodes. Whether that's six, whether that's seven, whether that's eight, I don't think we know confirmed yet. Mm-hmm. But nine already felt kind of short, um, and it felt like you were all over the place in season one. Again, we'll talk about some of those faults in a bit. But still, man, the the yeah. character twists that are coming, the battles you're going to see, House of the Dragon is going to fuck some people's brains. Yeah. And The Last of Us is going to do the same, although there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot more of a polarized reaction from the fan base, I think, based mm. on how the game fans reacted. And who knows, man, like the, the writers could do something completely different like they did with episode three of The Last of Us, where in that portion of the game, Joel and Ellie are just in this town just they need a car. That's it. And so they run into uh, fucking Frank and he fights through a horde of zombies to get them a car. The show said, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to scrap that and tell the greatest love story in the history of humanity. Here you go. Enjoy. And they had grown men crying on their parents' couches yeah. watching two gay men die with each other in the par- in the fucking post-apocalyptic world in the most beautiful romantic way possible. I think everybody's going to remember the where they were when they watched that episode and just where like these environment around them when they just start bawling uncontrollably. Where were you? Was this in your at your parents' house? Yeah, when you watched I, I watched it with them every Sunday. I would go back to their place and I'm just sitting there with my arms like behind my head so that my forearms can block my face and they didn't have to see their grown Iranian son crying on the couch. But that's I was beautiful. I was bawling. And that's that's decorum for you on your end, bro. I, I respect that. I was in the fucking middle of an airplane just bawling my eyes out and the flight attendant comes up to me asking sir are you okay so yeah i think i think we've made it as uh, as men you know showing our emotions at this point just Mid- middle TV eastern men. men breaking barriers dude that's, i love it that's what we're here for that's it we you know this is a very special podcast for us and for anyone who's listened we've <laughs> we've really broken barriers for them as well so what what do you think you know we're going to get into the categories later on but what made house of the dragon you know, a redemption because this is by all means yeah. a redemption season, right? People had a really bad taste in their mouth from Game of Thrones. I don't remember anyone rewatching Game of Thrones during the pandemic when you're rewatching every fucking show known to man. What about this redeemed Game of Thrones for you or at least the world of Westeros? Yeah, for me, I would say, you know, this may be really cliche to say, but the performances, man, like I, I, I think for some reason, like the last season of Game of Thrones, the performances of what you expected from previous seasons, I don't know if it was just character fatigue on the actors as end, you know, getting to this point or them just not being content with how their characters ended as well. But you could just tell that they didn't care about their roles as much or it wasn't just performed as good as it was the previous seasons. Um, this first season of, of House of Dragon, you know, I may have issues with like the first half of the season, but the, you, regardless of what you can say about how you felt about the writing or pace of the entire show, the acting was on fucking point. Everybody brought their fucking A game, and this was probably one of the best acted single seasons of television I think I've seen in HBO. So, so let's get into that for a second. There's going to be a couple of different notes I want to hit on this with the cast. Number one, Matt Smith. Yeah. Or, or as I call him, Damon Smith. 
right? Because he's turned into Dave. Having read the book, man, like I only see Matt Smith's face <laughs> when I read any Damon Targaryen segments in the book. Doctor Who is Damon Targaryen to you? And, and bro, there was outrage among the fan base when they cast Matt Smith, who everyone knew as Doctor Who, in this role. Is Matt Smith like right on top of that pedestal in terms of the acting performances you've seen on this show and what makes it great? Yeah. Because he doesn't have a lot of like writing and a lot of dialogue, but you see a lot of facial acting with him throughout the episodes, right? Like that fucking wedding scene where he's sitting there and he's just like looking at the audience, looking at the dance floor, eyeballing the uh, the Aaron guy who was going to like basically besmirch him for killing his cousin. So Matt Smith, just give me a little spiel on where he is in the context of the performances of this show. You know, his his role in this show kind of reminded me of Jamie Lannister's role in the first season. Kind of a guy that you're like, all right, this role shouldn't be as good as you're making it just the way it was written out for you. But you knocked it out of the park, right? It's kind of like it's kind of that less is more mentality of like the more the less I see you, the more impactful each scene becomes because of how much you really bring. And that kind of that's how I felt every time Matt Smith was on camera or, you know, anytime Damon was on camera, um, it was a, a scene stealer. Like he stole the entire scene every single time. Um, and I don't know if that's what the writers meant or if that's just the acting prowess of Matt Smith. But either way, I think he left the biggest impact for me um, after watching season one. And he's like, his character is the most Targaryen of all the oh, characters, absolutely. right? Like, if you've read the books, you know that Targaryens are very, how should I say this? They're very carnal folks, right? Like, there's a very traditional and ancient and lustful manner about them. I mean, the first conqueror, the guy who actually took over Westeros, um, whose entire calendar is structured around the date that he conquered Westeros... Um, had two sister wives, right? And Damon represents every bit of that, of kind of <laughs> like killing who he wants and taking what he wants and loving who he wants. And as we meet him, he's kind of like, he's restricted in that sense, right? He's yeah. married to a woman he doesn't want. He is at a position that he's not really, pri- not so much prideful about, not so much ambitious about as the head of the uh, the gold cloaks. He actually creates the gold cloaks and creates an organized army around them and loyalty base in them that's going to have major ramifications going forward in the next few seasons. No spoilers here. So we see that transformation for him like we saw with Jamie, and what's to come for his character is going to be really interesting. He, dude, he chokes Rhaenyra out, and people, like women across the internet are like, look how gracefully he had his hands around <laughs> her neck. Fucking Damon, dude. There's always something redeeming about him. Yeah. So, so the other question on the cast that I had for you was, we're going to talk about the time jump later on here, but in terms of the characters that you really were endeared to, and, and this is hard because your first impression of these characters are the young actresses and actors, right? Well, not actors, because it's just fucking Rhaenyra and Alicent that age. Men apparently don't age, <laughs> which is true. Biological <laughs> clock. But between the uh, the two time jumps... Who who do you feel like embodied the characters of Rhaenyra and Alicent more? Was it the young actresses um, in terms of, God, what were their names again? I forget already. I have no idea. I wish I could say that. I knew them off the top of my head. Was it the young Rhaenyra and uh, Alicent? Or Emma, I remember the old ones, yeah. Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook for the older versions of the two respectively. Who was it for you? Because there's a lot of split on the fan base here. So for me, I'll say this. For Allison, it was definitely the younger Allison, in my opinion, the one that was able to actually get the fuck, you know, get get the get the king, the innocent one. Yeah, the innocent one that knew what she was doing, that was being manipulated by her dad, or still is. Um, and the other, I would say, for from a Rhaenyra standpoint, definitely the older one. I, I think is that that character was just a lot more well written, and the actor had a lot more to be able to do than the earlier version of her did. Like, bro, the fact of like whenever she had the miscarriage, the miscarriage scene, for example, is like, all right, I'm sold. You know, I, I think that. The older one just knocked out of the parks, in my opinion. Wait, you're saying the older, the older, uh, the older Rhaenyra and okay. the younger Allison. Okay. Yeah, I mean, most people would say the opposite. I believe it. A lot of people felt it was Millie Alcock was the younger uh, Rhaenyra. But bro, they casted Olivia or Emma Darcy as Rhaenyra Targaryen. And then sought out the youngest actress. So, like, this role was written for Emma Darcy. Yeah. In the direction she's going to take this character, 
whoa, just watch out. Yeah. It's going to be like we haven't seen any of her. They called her the delight of the realm. And then towards the end of her reign, they called her the Black Queen. <laughs> I love it. So just be ready for what's going to happen with her. And you're, you've seen the seeds planted with all the tragedies and everything she endured during the last two episodes, right? The miscarriage, like you mentioned, and then news that her youngest son or her second born son was just killed. Yeah. So here we go. Let's see what happens with her. Um, for me, it was Millie Alcock just had that such a charismatic pull to her. She seemed more Targaryen. Um but again, that's not fair because that's Rhaenyra unbesmirched by the tragedies of life. And that's our first impression of the character. So unfair. But Emily Carey was absolutely riveting as Alicent. And a big departure from the book, bro. The book it basically paints Alicent as like Cersei with somewhat of a conscience. No, oh, wow. With a with a more of like a family self-preservationist vibe. So that's interesting to hear. And then, like, the performances all around, dude. We're going to talk about a six-man category later. We'll talk about who you would have interestingly wanted to be cast otherwise. But top-down, this is almost as flawless as you can get from a casting department. Yeah, I agree, man. They put their money into a lot of things. Um, and I think they didn't sheep out at all and trying to get some of the best actors that would fully embody these roles. So, well done. Last question for you before we get into categories. Mm -hmm. Season one of House of the Dragon or season one of Game of Thrones? Defend your choice. Oh, that's too easy. Season one, Game of Thrones. That's not a question. Why? Oh, bro, Sean Bean's character, I think, was just was so well written, and you actually got closure for that that entire character, who's like kind of point of view that a lot of the show was going towards. And it was it was phenomenal. Probably the best season of Game of Thrones. Lord think, so. Eddard Stark. That's it. I would name you Hand of the King. Oh, why? Well, thank you. Yeah, season one of Game of Thrones is one of the best seasons of television ever made. Yeah. Like right up there with any, <laughs> right up there with season three of Game of Thrones and season four of Game of Thrones <laughs> is like ten of the greatest seasons of television ever written. It was so like there were so many characters that you rooted for yeah. in season one, dude. Like Sean, or I'm sorry, Sean. What am I saying? Ned. <laughs> As Sean Bean, I was fucking calling him by his actor name because he plays the same guy who gets killed in every performance. <laughs> Come on, Sean. Stop fucking yourself over. Ned Stark, you main character, you root for honor bound, the good guy of the show, right? Jon Snow is the underdog. Tyrion is the witty. You know, it was refreshing going back and watching season one of Game of Thrones for this and like just seeing how smart Tyrion used to be before the writers fucked him after season five <laughs> is a guy who is limited to dick jokes and drunk jokes. That was it. You know what? That's That sells to the common folk, bro. Yeah. I mean, again, like this is for the common folk, so maybe they appreciate that, and maybe I should watch my mouth. You should, yeah. Arya Stark, right from the get-go, I was like, dude, what's going to happen with this little girl? Like, yeah. this is fucking amazing. I love this. House of the Dragon, not so much. Like, you kind of hate everyone in House of the Dragon, right? Yeah. And there's no... I don't think there's the perspective of the common folk yet in House of the Dragon. From the very get-go of Game of Thrones, we saw these like poor areas, we met bastards, we met uh you know, basically like Smith's apprentices yeah. like Gendry. There was a much wider scope in terms of the perspective of the show and you didn't really have that in House of the Dragon. You will later on, but not yet. Yeah. So I think that was a winning point for Game of Thrones was characters that you enjoyed and, you know, not basically the the writing not turning every character into a piece of shit. Is there <laughs> is there a character you love in House of the Dragon yet? Like your favorite character thus far? I mean, it has to. It, I think it has to be. Uh, it has to be Daemon Targaryen. I mean, I think yeah. It's just, it's, and he's a horrible person. Yeah. Like objectively, a, murdered his wife. Yeah. Let's run through the sins of Daemon Targaryen. Oh, murdered his wife. Yeah, literally. Fucked his. One. What was it? Fucked his niece. Yeah. Fucked, literally fucked his niece. Yeah, probably raped her. I would say probably close to it too. Close to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. What else? Killed countless, just like, uh, yeah. Sub took the dick off of a dude yeah. just to make a point during the first episode when he's riling the common folk in. Chopped a dude's head off halfway just because he spoke ill of your brother. Yeah. Wow. That's like five right there. Um, There's plenty more. I could think of, yeah. I mean, the whole red cloaks, the, the whole the whole cloak, the golden cloaks thing as well. Like, every time he just went with them, he just became a murdering, savage tyrant with no, like... No authority over him either. After the wife, after his wife commits, his second wife commits suicide, the uh, the Valyrian woman mm -hmm. doesn't console his kids, just becomes an absentee father for the rest of their lives as far as we know. Pretty much. Just, what a great guy though. It what is. a great, what a character we root for. That's, that's the underdog Fucking right there. Fucking Damon Targaryen, bro. <laughs> Let's go. Damon Smith, my guy. Um, Yeah, for me it's the same. <laughs> 
<laughs> Fucking love the guy. He's just a bro, you know, and, and he's going to be captivating going forward. The relationship between him and uh, Aemon Targaryen is going to be really, really interesting to see. Okay. That, the di- Not even a dichotomy. I think they're two, two very similar characters. And George R. R. Martin makes a good point to point out our own hypocrisies in rooting for Daemon, but conditioned to hate Aemon. So is there a character you're most excited for going forward in the show? Did I just ruin it? Did I say Aemon? I think Aemon. Yeah, I mean, it has to be Aemon, right? It has to be. I think any two of those other the other kids that um that have succession to the thrones. I think any of those guys, right? Any of the these these next kids that have uh succession to the throne. I think they're going to be ending up like used as pawn pieces to develop the main characters. So I think just those three kids. I'm really excited to see you know where where they essentially end up going. Yeah, I agree. It's it's going to be. All of them have very, very interesting arcs that I don't think you're going to see coming and, and don't fit what I view as the actors who are portraying them ever getting there. So it's going to be interesting to see them make that happen. But for me, it's Patty Considine was Ooh. like my guy. That was my number one. Patty. Probably the best character arc of any show, the most dynamic character in the first season, other than maybe Rhaenyra. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the other characters kind of like stay the same for the most part. Patty Considine, the performance he put on in that throne room scene that I'm sure we'll talk about, yeah. you know, the the character arc he went on, the doubt that he showed, and the lack of source material for that character. King Viserys, there's maybe like half a page worth of material on him in the actual book. And again, like what a, what a well done job by the writers of this show to emphasize and expand on this character and turn him in to the emotional fulcrum of this entire first season, really. You know, it's crazy. George R. R. Martin said that his favorite favorite performance in all season one was Patty Considine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember like reading a, a quote from him about that. And it's like, damn, that's praise right there. Like the the guy who made it just said, yeah, you're you're the one that knocked it out of the park the hardest. Though. Who who would have thought, dude? Who would have thought Patty Considine of all people, this comedy actor, would would be the one to rein that in? A dude for named us. Patty. All right, dude. I think it's time. I think it's time to go into the rewatchables categories. As always, we're going to talk about the most rewatchable scene, what aged the best, what aged the worst, the sixth man performance of the movie, who dies first in a horror movie. Can you fit a rock in it? Oh, that's going to be beautiful. Uh, The Bechdel test, what prop from the movie or from the series you'd want to take home, casting couch, and concerns. So let's start off, man. Most rewatchables. So since this was a season-long endeavor, I'll give you the option here. If you want to use an episode that was the most rewatchable or a specific scene from an episode. But I'll let you lead things off, bro. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six. Jeez, I only got, I got two, bro. Hit me with them. Um, We're probably going to overlap here. Probably. Uh, Aemon killing Lucerus. I mean, come on. That was kind of just like the what the fuck uh, aspect of the, the show where I'm just like, yeah, no shit. This is the this is the shit got real part of the show right then, right when I saw that. Be- the end. Beautifully executed, yeah. too. The shot of, uh, of Lucerus frantically flying away in the rain with the camera underneath his dragon the lightning lighting up the backdrop of the scene in the sky showing fucking aemon hovering above him a little trivia for you do you remember that dragon's name i do not know no Mm-mm. damn i wish i'd be that cool okay oh, no, i'm sorry i'll give you a second to remember it but that whole scene and then again like the impetus for this whole war beginning yeah. Aemon losing control of his dragon and it eating Lucerus and his dragon. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Fucking great scene, bro. I'm, I'm I'm excited to see what that scene can essentially lead to in season two and three because there are definitely gonna be ramifications that come out of it. And as somebody who has no idea that's gonna happen, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm excited to get my fucking just blown away from it. Um, the second scene for me, bro. Uh, maybe you may not have the scene, but you may at the same time. Uh, Damon just chopping off Damon's head, bro. That was right there. That was one of the most fun scenes in the world because I, I think it, it was kind of like, all right, what's Damon really gonna do for this treachery that was really, uh, you know, besmirched upon his brother? Dude just cleanly chops his fucking head off, and it was, you know, like in all HBO fashion. You see the grotesque nature of how that came out. Yeah, it just came out so like beautifully as well. Such a clean swipe That's of it. a Valyrian steel sword going Done. right through your skull. It's like it's like just a, a good Katana. transverse cross-sectional mm. view of his head. Done. That's all you could ask for right there. And honestly, in pure HBO fashion, that should look as real as fucking po- as it possibly could. I think Eamon would like just his pants a little bit when he saw that too. He's like, dude, this guy is actually really fucking cool. He's the only Targaryen I respect. My brother's a pervert. My dad's like fingers are falling off. 
everyone else is incestuous and like is producing bastards. This guy, it's a real motherfucker. It's a real this Targaryen. Guy fucks. This guy fucks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that show was that scene was incredible. Just the promptness of Matt Smith immediately backing off after he fucking chops his head off. Like, hey, I'm cool. Just yeah. hey, I'm nope. I'm not fighting anyone else. Somebody gonna clean that or? Uh... <laughs> yeah, someone. Uh, we gotta clean up on aisle fucking throne room. <laughs> So Vayman petitioning his claim, yelling at everyone, and then, boom, your head gets chopped yep. off. Beautiful scene. Yeah, Again, like emphasizing what a great actor Matt Smith was in performing that swipe of the sword. I've got, yeah, that was on my list as well. So let me give you the other ones I had. Episode three, bro. Mm-hmm. That bridge scene between Damon and Rhaenyra, where Damon had taken the dragon egg with Miss Sunday and was about to basically go across the narrow sea, and, you know, Viserys is calling for his head. So the hand goes to meet him. Beautiful score. Mm -hmm. They shot it with like a very nice overcast, the camera following you across the bridge, seeing their two forces come together. Matt Smith's, I'm sorry, Damon Targaryen's dragon, Caraxes coming in the back and intimidating them. And then Rhaenyra and her golden dragon coming through the clouds and meeting them and having that standoff. Wonderfully written scene wonderfully executed from all accounts and beautifully shot. It had every element. Like, when I was thinking about House of the Dragon not falling prey to the failures of the end of Game of Thrones, poor writing, lazy dialogue, and just massive spectacle CGI works that weren't really complemented by anything we consider cinematic, this this scene right there told me, like, they're going back to the roots because yeah. it had every element that we just talked about along with the the massive CGI, the massive dragons, the spectacles. So that that scene for me was huge in like giving me confidence about the show going forward. Yeah, the giant scope of the scene as well, like they made you really like it really did seem like this looked like a war more than anything else, you know? Like it was Damon's side versus Otto's side. And to me, I remember that scene, I was thinking, yeah, this this Otto dies. Like this is this is the end of the hand, right? Like this is this is going to be full out war and this the story and the show is about to go a completely other way and Rhaenyra comes in and it's like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah, that's a big fucking deal, bro. The High Towers are home to the richest city in the history of Westeros, Old Town, where the maesters go to train. Some still say that Old Town is stronger than King's Landing in terms Mm -hmm. of a fortification standpoint and in terms of wealth. So killing the second-born son of the wealthiest, strongest family in Westeros is a big fucking deal. Yeah. Yeah, well done. Um, I'm surprised. So the other one I had on here... You remember the royal hunt? Yeah, of course. Right? That's the one. Yeah, for sure. So when Viserys had just had Aegon, Aegon II, and they go on this royal hunt to celebrate his first name day, and Rhaenyra basically puts on a bitch fit, right? She's like, I just fucking, I don't know what I want to be, and I don't know who I want to do, and I'm just going to go and like, while you guys hunt for this royal elk, I'm going to run away, and my little, uh, my little cuck boy... Sir Kristen Cole, by the way, oh, cuck gee. of the year for 2022, oh, done. Kristen done. Cole. Yes. Okay. Salty. He's a salty cuck, but yes. a cuck nonetheless. Yes. Cuck of the year, Kristen Cole follows her off into the woods, right? When a director is able to make a point, a theme of an episode using absolutely no dialogue, but simply music and directorial direction, what a fucking non-cinematic phrase I just coined. <laughs> I think that's the sign of greatness, bro. Yeah. How, think about when they finally catch the false elk, right? I don't even know if I'm saying the name of the animal they were going for correctly. But when Viserys and his gang finds the false elk, how clumsily they're all like fucking p- pulling on each leg with like a rope to keep it still for Viserys. And he stabs it with his spear. He has to stab it twice. It's like, it's like an ugly yeah. death. And then Rhaenyra fucking slaughtering that pig, stabbing it, blood all over her, a very real element to it, real danger. There weren't any ropes holding it still. She just slaughters it with her dagger. And at the very end of the episode, the chosen elk or the grand elk of the forest, whatever the fuck it was, walks by and looks at her and and there's that moment of acknowledgement of this is the correct way it's done, right? Yeah. There was almost a purity to that scene of, hey... I'm going to make the audience think and feel that Rhaenyra's camp is the right one, the correct one, the way of doing things correctly, the naturalistic way, the Targaryen way, right? 
And Viserys and his camp, there's a very superficial and kind of court politeness, mannerism, fakeness to it all. Yeah. That was beautiful for me. That that like early season was probably one of the two best moments of pre-time jump, Renera and Allison. Yeah, no, I mean, that phenomenal scene. I think you've said it perfectly well, bro. Um, I think for me, the main thing about that scene that it really showed was, you know, we're still living in the era of Westeros where military might reign supreme, even over, you know, the most uh, political or the most, you know, I guess you, like stoic and, you know, pl- platonic leader out there. And that really doesn't matter. You know, you could be the best like Aristotle, like fucking leader historian out there, but in a war mongering world, the warrior technically is the one that's probably going to, you know, have the most success amongst the empire. And I think that kind of really foreshadowed that it's like, Hey, Patty Constantine, um, you know, Viserys really isn't this military might, right? He's not his forebearers. And it's kind of like, no, it looks like Rhaenyra may be that, you know? And I think it's kind of, it sets the differences between the two, but also <laughs> kind of like what the rightful way the Targaryen bloodline is supposed to look like. And, and how like subtly they're able to show that, bro. You know, they, a lazy show like a fucking cable television show or a, a Disney Plus show would constantly hammer you with dialogue of Viserys saying something like, oh, I'm feeling old. Oh, it hurts. Oh, give me milk of the poppy. Whereas in this show, I don't know if you caught this. When he gets off his horse, they have to bring like a step down for him yeah. to step off his horse because he can't even climb his horse like a proper a proper human being at that age. He was only like 40, 30 or 40 years old at the time. Uh, during these events, he needs like a stool to step off his horse. He needs like a custom fitted spear to spear the fucking animal. And it takes him two stabs. He constantly drinks wine to dull the pain that he always has. So the subtlety of, you know, showing you but not holding your hand is beautifully executed here. And I think people want that, man. People don't want a show to hold their hand and be blatantly obvious about things. Like season five of Game of Thrones, I remember there was an episode where they're in Marine and they're killing all the masters and they had to write in blood on the wall, kill the masters. Like, dude, don't write it on the wall. Like, we get the fucking, we get the point. Be a little more subtle about it, right? Don't treat me like I'm stupid. Exactly. And I think House of the Dragon is respecting the intelligence of its viewers thus far, at least. So, yeah, beautiful scene. Um I have one more and then a, a maybe that I want to ask you about, just your feelings on it, because it was a polarizing moment in the show. For me, the best episode of the entire show, period, was episode eight, mm-hmm. where Rhaenyra comes back to King's Landing, and she's finally like petitioning her claim to the throne, right? Um, at this point, Viserys is like addled with milk of the poppy and other opioids. He's on his deathbed from what it looks like half his face is missing. And so he's out of the picture and by the court of law, the hand of the King is going to appoint who the rightful heir is now. And they're talking about like the kids as well. They're talking about uh, Lucerus's claim to drift Mark, so on and so forth. Right before it happens, we have the fucking, and I was not expecting this at all. Uh, I don't remember this being in the book. Maybe it was, I don't remember it though. Renair's about to make her claim, and then boop, fucking the doors open, and chills down my spine when the King's Guard announces, "Here enters Viserys Targaryen, first of his name, King of the King of the Andals, Protector of the Realm, uh, you know, King of the Roinar, all that stuff, the whole claim entrance, and the you know, f- timeless, eternal walk that he took." the painful, meandering, laboring walk from the entrance of the throne room to getting the acknowledgement of looking at Rhaenyra, the one that he's here to defend, his favorite child, his only child that he says on his deathbed, to walking up the steps and having his brother, Daemon Targaryen, pick up his crown and help him up those final steps. And you see, you know, it's not just about Viserys in that moment. You saw Daemon, a big moment in his character arc as well, one of his prime motivations was, bro, he just wanted his brother to love him. Yeah, He just wanted his brother to choose him. And the last person to help his brother in one of the most meaningful moments of his life was Daemon Targaryen. Yeah. So that was probably like, if we were to count Game of Thrones into things as well, one of the three most 
positively emotional scenes in the history of Game of Thrones for me. Yeah, I mean, everything about that scene was just perfect, right? I, I, it was just the epic scope of it. Like, you just knew that it was going to be an epic, epic scene just on the score as well, right? He's walking. That combination of just acting, scale, and score, just w- when it's those three things combined and they're all flawlessly executed, you're probably going to have one of the best scenes in the show, you know, far none for any show. And I think this just showed that, right? Like, you had all those three things out there, and each one was just done so perfectly, perfectly executed as well. And each of the supporting characters that were there, too, they played their roles to a T. Like, even with Damon, like, you saw a little bit of humility when he was when he was doing that, in which you really never saw humility in Damon's character throughout the entire season. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it was a defining moment in all the characters, and I think this was kind of that scene that probably made George R. R. Martin think, yeah, like, Patty, Patty just t- fucking took this cake. Like, this is, this is him. Yeah, I mean, he... I think he ended up winning an award for best supporting actor, right? Which is crazy, dude. House of the Dragon won the award for best show. Yeah, did it really? Yeah, holy fuck, yeah. Best drama. It was uh, what was it? Not the Golden. Is it the Golden Globes that does television or the uh, the Emmys? Uh, it's the Emmys. Okay, yeah. So it won it for best drama, which Game of Thrones never won. That's the only. I think the only um, Emmy Game of Thrones ever won was for best actor in a drama series, Tyrion Lannister, during season yeah. four during the whole trial scene. So big time That's crazy. for this to win. I think it was more of a product of the time, though. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Breaking Bad, Mad Men, all those shows were on during that time. And Game of Thrones was literally during the golden age of television. So exactly. just less competition, right? right? It's like the Bucks winning the championship in 2021. <laughs> so, yeah, for me, that's got to be up there. And the last one I wanted to ask you about. So this was one that um, was a little bit of a departure from the books, but... Queen Rainey's the queen who never was in episode nine, breaking out of King's Landing from the dragon pit while Aegon is being coronated as the king. Using her dragon to break out from underground, killing hundreds of people, having the opportunity to murder the entire green opposition, but refusing to do so and maintaining her neutrality and flying away and going to Rhaenyra to let her know what happened. How'd you feel about that scene? A lot of people were like, Oh, what the fuck? You could have killed them all. That didn't make any sense. Oh, Rainey's is supposed to be a good character. She murdered all those people in the dragon pit. Just what were your thoughts on that last scene? And should it qualify as one of the most rewatchables given the grand spectacle of CGI it was? I think it put a lot of like a lot of things into perspective for there. It's kind of like the the first thing I thought was the whole the oligarchy, you know, the oligarchy versus the common man. And I guess, you know, what these characters really think of what you know what they're really doing it's like hey if you're if you're her are you just gonna kill a million you know nobodies versus killing these seven royal oligarchs i think that kind of the understated like the understated due diligence of stating you know what really matters and you know in this first season we really didn't see any of the poor areas of talent you were pretty much in the entire oligarchy i I think this kind of uh validated that point more than anything else to me the second thing i thought was okay this lady's probably gonna have a larger role in the shows or in the season to come uh, based upon the, the single action that she essentially performed, you know, like it's kind of like, all right, there was something larger in scope because if she did really just kill everybody in the entire, and then the entire scene, where the fuck do you go from season two? Right? Like you literally killed off most of the main characters then. So I, I just don't understand it from like a, from like a writing comprehension standpoint, especially in season one. So I think you try to do the best uh, of what you could with the show. So I understood it. I think it would have been really out of left field. In my opinion, if she did kill everybody. Yeah, um, not just that, but like the conversation she had with Allison about Allison's role just being a mother protecting her kids. I think her stepping in front of her kids during that last moment, I think Rainey's really empathized with her in terms of being a mother who's lost her children. Well, she thinks she lost her son. She thinks her son was burned alive. Um, And so seeing that coming face to face with that and also not – there's a a lot of a – there's a lot of like, how should I say, a huge stigma around killing your own family in the Westeros world. Like every Targaryen who's ever kinslayed has befallen a horrible fate. And so she didn't want to kill other Targaryens right in front of her, albeit her opposition, and have that label upon her as well. And she would have been a kingslayer as well, yeah. right? So a lot of different motivations behind her character doing that. I didn't have a huge issue with it in terms of the plot of the show and like it being kind of like a nonsensical move on her end, but I don't think it makes the most rewatchable scene 
just because there's just better stuff out there. Yeah. I don't know. And I think it'll say it'll do nicely to set up kind of the common folks reservations with dragons in general, which is going to be a huge theme of the show going forward. Just a dragon wrecking shit and like fucking people up in the dragon pit, which again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but that's going to come back into play later on in the series. So that's it, man. Most rewatchables done. Nice. What age the best about this? What What do you think? I guess I should say will age the best about this first season. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think we kind of hit on this earlier, but the performances, right? It's just it's one of those things that we're gonna look back at. And as good as season one of Game of Thrones was from like a performances standpoint, I think this is probably the only criteria um, that meets or exceeds what we saw in Game of Thrones during that first iteration of Westeros. So yeah, I mean the performances I think are just gonna go down as being probably some of the best. The CGI may not age well. Uh, you know, we can have things later on that we look at like, yeah, this didn't age the best, but you know, the performances of the actors and the character development that we saw in this first season, I think that's just gonna uh, age very, very beautifully as we go into the show. What do you think about the opening? You think did you like what they did with the opening as opposed to Game of Thrones kind of like having a map of the world instead this kind of like shows the lineage of House Targaryen? I guess. I mean, you have to do something about it. I don't I, I kind of it really didn't make sense to see the giant scope of Westeros. I think from the out like from from that perspective because it's like it really doesn't matter in season one, right? Exactly. Like, you didn't even see anything. It's you know if this show is pretty much all predicated upon the Targaryen bloodline, Dragonstone and King's Landing. That's yeah. like the only places we really go to other than Driftmark. Exactly. So I think yeah, for that first uh, aspect of season one, I'm okay with it. I don't know what's gonna happen in season two or three, and if the plot dictates a larger scope, then yeah, I think you should. I was apathetic to it. I was apathetic to the opening. I thought it was cool that they had little like. Uh, Easter eggs in there as well, but not not that big of a point for me. And it wasn't legendary and groundbreaking like yeah. Game of Thrones' opening was. So apathetic would be the best way I would describe it. Um, the other one I was going to ask you as far as what aged the best. You, uh, I remember the first few episodes you watched, you had a reservation about this. How do you feel about the uniqueness of the dragons, which is really going to come into play as we start to meet more dragons going forward in the in the future seasons? Were you still like, why do these dragons look like how to train your dragon movie dragons? Or did it start to make sense that, okay, these dragons have unique characteristics that may align to their dragon riders and you can appreciate kind of where they go with depicting dragons as really d- disparate and unique characters themselves. Yeah, so like the first couple Game of episodes, Thrones, you know, all yeah. three of Daenerys' dragons all look the same. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the first couple of episodes, I was still, you know, pretty hesitant on how they look like and how they were acting. I think for me, where I kind of was like, all right, this may be fun and I- I'm kind of sold on this now was, again, the the end scene with Lucerys, right? Uh, when we see Seraxis, like you've said, uh, end up just getting off the leash and, you know, killing him in such a brutal way and just looking so good. I was kind of sold. And also, I think it was that scene where uh, Damon's wife commits suicide, you know, you and the, the dragon literally Vagar burns her alive. Yeah, I think that was kind of the scene, too. I was like, yeah, I'm sold. This, this actually looks like a real dragon. So I think maybe it was just like the way they made the dragons look early on, maybe because they were younger for whatever reason. But as we got towards the middle and the end, yeah, I was kind of sold on it, man. Yeah, and there's going to be there's going to be a few more that are much more unique than the ones we've already seen. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll see where they go with it. What age the worst, man? I've only got one here. Oh man, for me, it, yeah, the pacing. I think for me, it was yeah. the, it was the pacing in the, the time first jump. episode. Yeah, uh, the the time jump, and also I think for me, it was also like pacing the first two episodes of how, just like how un, like how uneven it was compared to Game of Thrones. Um, like the first three, the first three episodes, but I'm not gonna lie, it was kind of it was kind of a slugfest for me. Like I feel like I was a little bored just because there was so much exposition, and I understand the reason that you need the exposition, right? Like you're building this a giant world. Um, and you, you know, you need to build, build this character arc before actually diving deep into it. But if I wasn't a Game of Thrones fan and like, you know, I'm just watching this universe for the first time, I'd be struggling at certain points of the first three episodes to get through all of it just because there's just so much to take in and just so much exposition as opposed to exciting, you know, things you would expect from a medieval war drama. That. And then when like things start getting set up and you start to meet these characters, you like move on from them very quickly, right? Like the Strongs, uh, you meet Rhaenyra's first strong love, right? The one she ends up like having babies, her first two kids with. You meet him for a couple episodes and then he's dead. You know, you meet, you start to see Damon and his Valyrian wife's relationship overseas, and then after one episode, she's dead. I would have liked to see those motivations and like really felt those losses 
a little bit more to empathize with the characters, if we got to spend more time with them, see them interact with each other more, see the intimacies that they share with each other, to really hammer home those deaths. They, yeah. There were a lot of deaths in the first season. I'll say none of them felt impactful to me. Even no. Lucerus's death at the very end when he gets chomped up by Vagar, I'm like, all right, I, I knew this actor for, what, two, three episodes? And, and I know nothing about him other than the fact that he doubts himself and really wants to live up to the title of his mother and be a rightful ruler, but doesn't think he's got it within himself. What do we do with that? Yeah, it's just nothing. It, it's pawns, right? Like it's pawns in the giant scheme of this entire arc that were killed off as opposed to Game of Thrones. Like you had the main character, right? This is like the entirety of like the perspective of the whole character. And you know so much about those yeah. characters and their internal struggles and what they fight through with themselves on a day in day out basis. I knew nothing about these people that died. Yeah, no, you probably got like, what, maybe half an episode of exposition on them. Now, again, that's going to come. <laughs> no spoilers. But a lot of the people in the show, most of the people in the show right now will die. I'll say that. Nice. It, most, 90% of the main characters are going to end up dead by the end of this series, which is going to be four seasons, I think the writers said they're going to shoot for. So that's going to come. But again, in terms of like the first season having an oomph to losing someone impactful, didn't have it. Yeah. And like, again, dude, was this ever a complaint that we had in television before Game of Thrones? Like, <laughs> bro, they didn't kill off someone that I love. What the fuck? Like, <laughs> nothing happened this season. What's what's going on? Can yeah. we speed things up? Yeah, we're living in the twilight zone of television now, bro. Yeah. Unfair expectations, but <laughs> th that's where we're at. This is going to be an interesting one. I think I know for sure who you're going to pick here. But who's your sixth man? Who's the character that wasn't a lead role, but absolutely every scene they were in, you wanted to see more of? Oh, dude. Man, that's tough, but... I gotta go with Serato Hightower, bro. Yeah, yeah. Riss Ethan, dude. He was the lizard man himself. <laughs> he, yeah, dude, it's, he knocked out of the park. Like, this is the prototypical hand of the king, right? Like, you're the most influential person uh, to the king in the entire realm. Like, you're really swaying this man's decision. You're kind of like the brain of the king, really. You know, you're looking at it from a different perspective. And honestly, if you're a very sly mind and you're very, you know, Machiavellian, which Otto Hightower definitely is then you're going to be able to sway the kingdom more than the king really in certain points in time. And we kind of saw that with Otto Hightower, like how like Allison's pretty much a giant pawn in his game to get full power. And it's fucking crazy and amazing to see, you know, what it transformed into. And, you know, he was like the guy that we love to hate. I would say he's the closest to a Littlefinger-esque character oh, yeah. in the show that we've gotten thus far. But objectively speaking, he's he might be doing the right thing, bro. You've got this old medieval world where the values are archaic to say the least <laughs> to be polite <laughs> and women aren't viewed as strong valued members of society yet at this point and the dude is thinking we've never had a female ruler the last time this was even debated the kingdom almost went into war the kingdom's already gone into war multiple times while the Targaryens have reigned, whether it's by the faith militia, whether it's by infighting themselves, whether it's by rebellions because of different values that they hold. Why not me still hold my buddy up, Viserys Targaryen, hook him up with my daughter, and I'm just, at this point now, I'm just protecting my family and protecting her lineage, right? He never wanted to kill Rhaenyra. He just wanted her to get to give up her seat for the betterment of the realm. That is his motivation as a character. So as shitty as he is, as nefarious as his plots are, he still by all means like got a pure motivation in terms of protecting his family, much like early season Cersei Lannister, which we empathized with from that standpoint, right? Tyrion said that's your one redeeming quality. You love your children. Yeah. And that's kind of what Riss Ifan's Otto Hightower even though he's never said it outright plainly, every move he's made has been for his family, has been for House Hightower. And it's crazy that thus far, like, I haven't seen any portion of the fan base uh, point that out about Otto Hightower in that, dude, this guy who's only ever played fucking comic book movie bad guys or the guy from Logan where he's the albino guy who yeah. can sense other mutants and he's turned into this medieval plotter, this well-spoken you know, <laughs> we found her in the bowels of a pleasure house, just to, coining all these iconic phrases in the first season of House of the Dragon and loving every second that he's in. Any small council scene that he sat in, 
I could have watched like a whole episode of. Oh, dude, just the, I could have watched a whole episode of the banter between him and uh, and Damon Targaryen. Like, yeah, that's an episode right there. Yeah, dude, if they had like a Twitter war where oh, they were done. firing tweets back and forward to each other. It would be like Donald Trump levels of epicness. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Is he the Donald Trump of Westeros? Ooh, man! To, based on what you just said, I think you probably just like neglected half our viewer base. Wow. So, but at the same, at the same time, we, we chip away at our viewer base really more and do. more every episode. I, I love it, and. I don't know, man. Like, there's there's certain things. Like, I wanted, as much as I wanted to think that this guy was an altruistic guy, thinking about like you know the betterment of the realm. I just think this was a giant power ploy and him just wanting to you know power. What's what's the most you know addictive thing in mid America? Just money and power. And yeah, I, you see that here in today's age too. And this yeah. is one of those human virtues that you always have: get more money and power. Again, you talk about the irony of the dialogue. You remember in that first season where Damon is like spying on the small council, talking shit about him behind his yep. back. And Viserys says, no, Damon would never want the crown. He's many things, but he's not one to seek power. And what did Otto say? Otto said, the gods have never made a man who lacks the patience for absolute power. Mm. So <laughs> a little little foreshadowing yeah. for his own character down the season as well. Yeah. Well said, man. Risiphon for me as well. Um, while we're talking about six man, we got to we gotta ask here. Can you fit a rock in House of the Dragon? And oh, if gosh. so, who would the rock play? Can we just have a jousting scene of, of like the rock trying to get on a fucking horse and that horse just dying every breath to like just have it like just get through the fucking just halfway just halfway through the horse says fuck it you yeah. gotta get off me and it's just the rock sprinting down with his lance jousting with someone on a horse that, that's it bro just I, I need to see a rock bottom with you know with, with him just jousting on it as well and like the horse just saying no fuck it I'm a rock it. bottom in a medieval setting like the closest we got to that was the scorpion king right yeah when I think he so. gives the people's eyebrow yeah but I think he, this in this case you need him in full regalia you need him in all like armor and the he just takes a chainmail off and just says, can you smell what the rock is cooking? It's Jesus just, it's Christ. Just, it's just set right there. I would have liked to see, you know, when um, the foot fetish guy, Larry oh, Strong, when he starts to like recruit his the motherfuckers down in the basements to basically burn down um, all the strongs in their home. Mm-hmm. I would have liked the rock to be one of those guys just to get his tongue cut. <laughs> and he's just walking around in a hoodie, just burning shit down on the side. That would have been an interesting role for him. The real well. Black Adam. The real Black Adam. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but instead of like burning things down, he just rock bottoms every member of House Strong. I would pay to, see and that's that. how he kills them all. Yeah, that would, that would single-handedly pay for my HBO Max subscription for the next ten years. I think so. Yeah. yeah, you can rock bottom the castle too. Done. Or give them people's elbow, bounce off one end of the corridor to the other end of the corridor, and just people's elbow the shit out of a haystack. Him and like him and a couple of dragons are just having an eyebrow scene as well. Like, oh, oh, the rock talking to a dragon would be. Done. I think. I think the dragon would ride the rock at you that think so? point. Yeah, I don't. I don't <laughs> the think dragon the dragon would ride way. the rock. I'm done. And the the rock just wears the dragon like a backpack. Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah. All right, we found a role for you, Dwayne. Okay. Um, who dies first? If this is a horror movie, this is easy for me, dude. Man, who dies first? If this is a horror movie, come on, Allison. Now. I would say maybe Allison. Dude. Maybe who do you have? Quotes Valerian, the oh, black done. man dies first. Yeah, done. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the one black guy they Fuck put yeah. into into the Game oh, of Thrones gosh. universe. How could I be so? Just evil? dies immediately if this is a horror movie. Yeah, absolutely. Although he has an English accent, so is he like a real horror movie black person? No, he's not. I right. think they had to make him. I think they had to completely confirm that he's actually black by like giving him dreads, and they're like, you know what? Do, do do the whole like yeah. Dave Chappelle Saturday exactly. Night Live skit of House of the Dragon. It's like exactly. It's like this is how we're gonna prove it. It's like done. It's like all right, bro. You bring like a crackhead from his house. Exactly. He's like, Y'all got some dragon rocks. That's it. That's it. You know, you gotta you you gotta make it as stereotypical as you possibly can yeah. to be able to you know make up for the fact that you, have, you this is the first amount of diversity you've ever had on an HBO show. Only HBO, dude. They're the only ones that can pull it off. Done. Um, but yeah, if it wasn't him, Allison's the first one to die. She's just got like Olivia Cook has the classic. I'm about to get like slashed to death in like a scream movie look about her. Like it's like she it's, it looks like she's gonna enjoy it too while it's happening. This is easy, bro. The Bechdel test. Mm. The test where you have two named female characters. The two named female characters have to have at least one scene of dialogue with each other. And during that scene of dialogue, they need to discuss something other than a male. Does House of the Dragon pass the Bechdel test? I want to say yes. Easy money. Yeah. All the scenes between Rhaenyra and uh, Allison, Allison yeah. talking about like Rhaenyra's insecurities, about what she wants, about like not wanting to be a court lady. The scenes between Eve Best's Rhaenys, the queen who never was an Allison, talking about a mother's duty, talking about, hey, I see what you're trying to do. Like you really want power. So this is a Bechdel test slam dunk. Yeah. Far and away. 
Um, what prop from House of the Dragon season one would you want? Dragons not included. Oh, God damn it. I was going to Sorry, dude. Uh, give me Damon's Valyrian steel uh, sword that's just able to cut heads off like they're just watermelons. I'll take yeah. two of those, especially in the streets of Houston. I feel like that's kind of a must. Yeah. I would. Yeah. You need a deterrent, yeah. right? You need something that can like protect you. So I would take uh, Laris Strong's uh, foot, his club foot. <laughs> Just the stankiness of that foot, the the, the, dry, leg. the dried cum stain from like him jerking off to Allison uh, that's just like splattered on that foot that he never washes. I think that would fuck that would push some people away. The so? Houston homeless population would ha- wouldn't have shit on you there. Wow. Yeah, that just happened, bro. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine us just you're swinging your Valyrian steel sword at my club foot? I think I would. Uh, I'd, I'd be scared shitless, bro. That club foot's seen a lot of things that I don't think the steel has ever seen. Yeah, I mean, Valyrian steel sword cuts through White Walkers, but I don't know if it. No, cuts it won't cut through your club foot. foot. Not at all. No. Casting couch. What is there to say here? Anyone you can see playing any of these roles? Let's just think about like the most Hollywood dudes. Who? What Hollywood African American character would you want to see in the role of Corliss? It just sounds so racist to say, but Idris Elba. Idris Elba. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It, uh, just give me a, like a very imposing. Uh, very great, like black man. That's an actor. That's an English accent, and it's like, yeah, I feel horrible saying it, but that's probably the case. Yeah. And if you want to add more, like you know, uh, add more, I guess you know, Hollywood appeal to it, then yeah, just put Idris Elba in it. What about like Samuel L. Jackson? Just like That'd these be motherfucking greens. These motherfucking dragons. Oh my gosh, no, that would. Yeah, I, I would. I would pay good money to see that too. God, the number of motherfuckers. I, I don't think we've heard a motherfucker in uh, in Game of What's Thrones. What's the proper yet? way of saying motherfucker in Game of Thrones? Like, like twat. Like, I, I really don't even know what the hell they would say. Yeah, I don't know. Fucker of the mother. Fucker of the mother. Yeah. Fucker of the milk. I don't Father, know. Yeah, something like that. Milk fucker. Yeah, probably. We'll we'll think of it after the episode. I believe it. Um, what about? Let me see. Who else here would be an iconic recast? Let's take this back to Chef's Courthouse. Is there just a a smoking hot actress you would want to see play Allison or Rhaenyra? Throw Megan Fox in there as Allison. I think yeah. that would just yeah. Uh, the the scene of her trying to seduce Patty. I think. Oh just, my god! That would just be soft porn. That she wears watching. the same outfit she same. had in the Transformers. She just same. like brings in like a 2008 Chevy Malibu and just like works on the hood while Patty's playing with this that's fucking it? dragon ensemble. That, that's pretty much it, right? And then like just lingerie made a chainmail just ac- ac- accidentally comes in there and just says, "Daddy, GG." Wow. Yeah. Done. I don't know if I can one up that. No, I mean it's it's all that's all I can think of. It's, there you go. I think that's when we all see like, hey, Patty, he's not into sixteen year old chicks anymore. He's into Megan Fox. Yeah, I'm, I'm sold. Well done. Um, that's all I got in terms of categories, man. That's it. Concerns going forward. What are you worried about? What is there anything that you're like? I hope they don't do this going forward in the future seasons. I think with the importance of like these characters, I really hope that they don't. You know, I, I think we still have a salty taste in our mouth for the last season Game of Thrones and how these characters ended. So I think that's kind of the only thing I'm scared of. It's like, don't get me so hyped up for a character and being so like, you know, thinking what's really going to happen. And at the end, the payoff is just atrocious. You know, and I think that's kind of just my only fear because it's like I'm really liking Damon Targaryen. I'm really liking uh, Rhaenyra, really liking Otto Hightower, Alice, like you name it. Like all these characters have are, are seen really promising. I just don't want to be disappointed thinking like so highly of this character and wanting to see like what possibilities that they come out. And Bran Stark, you know, just ending up winning it all, right? Like, I, I just, just give me something to look forward to rather than just being disappointed at the end. I forgot one more. We'll close the episode off after this. Is there a quote that oh, yeah. hammers home for you in this episode? Uh, yeah, Mysteria talking to Otto uh, to put a stop to the child fighting that was in the rings of the city. Uh, there's no power, but who the people allow you to take. That was random. Like, a well-said quote and good writing, but... That motivation kind of came out of nowhere for me. Again, like the pacing of the show, I think kind of, I don't know. I think it put a bad taste in my mouth from that scene because we never see any other motivation from Miss Sandy to protect children other than her saying to Damon early in the season, like, I was a slave all my life. Like, I came to you to be protected and to be free. No, her character made the least amount of sense. But when she said that scene, I was like, oh, man, relevance to today. Well done. Yeah. I enjoyed the, um, there was two quotes in particular. I told you the one that Otto said about uh, the gods have never made a man who lacked the patience for absolute power. There was one where Viserys is like reminiscing about his life. He's like, was I a good king? I, I often wonder what I would have done if I was put through the crucible. And his trusted advisor, homeboy Lionel Strong, Hand of the King, said, many who are, many who are tested only wish to have been spared of it. 
So a lot of people always want to go through it. They wonder what they would be like in those moments. But the reality is, especially during that time period, war is fucking ugly. Yeah. Going to battle is traumatic. Ned showed signs of PTSD in season one of Game of Thrones when he sees Arya training with the Sword of Bravos, and he hears their swords clanking at each other and he starts remembering the war of the of Robert's Rebellion in the back of his head. But yeah, we don't really talk about that. The fucking PTSD of slicing dudes open with a fucking blunt ass steel sword in a field of mud and how horrible that is. Yeah, we talk about how bad PTSD could be for modern day soldiers, but it's like, hey, you're shooting a guy like 20 yards away from you with like a ballistic missile and you never going to see it. It's like, no, dude, you're literally chopping a dude's fucking arm off and then him begging you for mercy. Please. Yeah, it's like you're chopping his fucking head off and it's like, yeah, you got to do that 20 times over before you die. Too. The Last of Us did a pretty good job of that as well. Yeah. When, when like Joel's about to stab that dude who jumped him mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh and the dude is just like, no, please, just yeah. like my mother, just go get her. Like, we'll trade mom, you. Mom. You don't have to do this, mom. <laughs> and he just slices his chest right open. <laughs> the other quote, man, my last quote here is Matt Smith. Remember when him and Corliss are talking about their plot yeah. to go and like fuck the Stepstones up? And he, Matt's, Damon Targaryen says, it was never my, my brother's best trait. What's that? Ruling. <laughs> and... Corliss kind of gets in on it. He starts talking shit about him. And Matt Smith says, I will talk shit about my brother. You will not. (laughs) Which, again, bro, just shows every core motivation of that character without spelling it out for us. That although he envies his brother and he has disdain towards his brother, ultimately, bro, he loves him. Like, that's his brother. And he won't hear anyone else talk shit about him other than himself. Can't wait to see what they do with this character, man. I'm excited for it. And that's it, man. House of the Dragon. Season 1 rewatchables. Thanks for making it all the way through with us. Uh, We'll probably be back for season two when some shit goes down. Um, But other than that, man, thank you guys for listening as always. And Nabil, the real deal, you got anything to say to the people before we say our usual adios? No, man. I mean, golden age of HBO, you know, live through it. Enjoy, enjoy game, uh, you know, House of the Dragons. Enjoy The Last of Us. Enjoy Succession. We're in for the ride of gold, of the, the golden age of television and Game of Thrones was kind of just, you know, or House of Dragon was really kind of like the creme de la creme to start us off with it, bro. Yeah, I know Succession's ending, but hopefully The Last of Us and uh, House of the Dragon have a sort of renaissance era for HBO because they've been they've been going through a little bit of a strut in terms of making money. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. And until then, we say bye. bye.